Here we go. Good morning, my friends. We are in the middle of the topic of humility. Humility, as we defined, is when a person doesn't have the proper perspective in where they stand with uh, regards to themselves, with the regards to their relationship with Hashem, with regards to other people. So we know that the more honorable a man is, the more he recognizes his limited capacity. That is the way it should be. And we say, even the greatest of mighty people are like nothing in front of the Almighty. Therefore, the greater a person is, the more humble they are. As King David writes, I'm like a worm, I'm like a maggot, and not like a human. We're talking about King David. He was one of the greatest. I mean, every psalm we have is authored or put down ink on paper because of King David. He was no one short of, of amazing. Giving a full perspective as to what humility is. Again, many people have this idea in their mind that humility means I need to stand in the corner, not to say a word, not to be, uh, not to be. a person needs to know who they are. That is humility. They need to know who they are, right? What they're capable of. What is theirs and what is a gift from Hashem. And that's very, very clear. We see through all the writings of our sages, and we'll see soon. I'll give you an example. We see Abraham. Abraham was a very humble man. Yet, we see that Abraham was fighting with God. What does he say? He says, he said, forbid, I, I forbid you from killing a righteous with a non-righteous. It is, uh, it's forbidden for the judge of the entire universe, of the entire world, to do something which is injustice. Excuse me, who are you talking to? That's Abraham talking to God. He's talking to God. Right, so it doesn't any way, in any way take away. It says, "We see from one hand that Abraham is speaking firm, strong words at the Almighty." Right, and on the other hand, Abraham says, "But I'm nothing. I'm just like I'm Earth. I'm like I'm like little nothing. Right, I can be trampled on by anyone." We see the same thing by Moses. And that even though he was more humble than any man, he also spoke very sharply at the Almighty. Right? When he says, right? when he talks about you, you're not saving your people, this is regarding when the Jewish people were in Egypt. So we see that just because someone is humble doesn't mean that they hide in a corner and don't say a word. That's not what it means. Right? Rather, what it means is, that they know their place. They know exactly their relationship with Hashem. They know exactly where they, where they stand, where they should be. And they know what they are allowed to and not allowed to say. Now, when God created the world, he created first the day one, he created right the light and the dark. And the second day, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and whatever, each, each day progressively advancing the world. The last day, he created man. But it's interesting, if you look at how God discusses creating man, how it says in the Torah, it says, Na'ase Adam, let us make man. Well, what? What? Who's here? There's no one here yet. 
אף על פי שלא יסיעו ביצירה זו, ויש מקום למינים לרדוס, right, even though the Almighty doesn't need anyone's help to create man, and it gives an opening for the heretics to start denying the existence of a God. לא נמנע הכוסף מללמוד, מללמד דרך ארץ ומידס ענובה שיהיה הגודל, נמלח ונוטו רשוס מן הקטן. He says still the verse teaches us humility that even the Almighty who has the power to do anything still counts in the smaller entities before doing something, right? A boss shouldn't do something unilaterally. He should include his subjects. A, a, a king should be the same. A president should be the same. Get everyone on board with you. Don't be a dictator dictating what, what should happen. And that is something that we see that Hashem says, let us make man. Who's he talking to? Talking to the angels, but including them that it's not only me, right? It's all of us together. Let us. And that's the way of, of humility. It's amazing that you can look at the speeches of world leaders, whether they're in the United States or in other countries, and you can see who has a level of humility and who doesn't. You can see that many times world leaders will say the word I like 80 times in a 10-minute speech. And then you have world leaders who will say we, we have accomplished great things, as right? Counting all of their people in with them. And that is the difference between uh, someone who's arrogant, thinking everything's about I, because look at me, I'm so great, I'm a leader of a country, versus someone who is understanding their place, understanding their rightful place. Our sages point out the difference, the contrast, the strong contrast between Abraham and Noah. Abraham wasn't a, a, a man who just cared about himself. He cared about all of Hashem's creations. Again, because it's, it's a much higher level of, of existence when you live, not only for yourself, not only in your own virtues and qualities, but actually understanding that you're part of a big, big picture here. You know, it's actually the, the seventh of the 48 ways that we talk about in Pirkei Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers. And now we're dealing with a, a time of year where uh, between Pesach and, and Shavuot, for the seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuot, where we count the Omer, where we uh, do so many, so many um, acts to try to correct ourselves and be more meticulous with our interpersonal behaviors. So our sages give us an unbelievable gift in uh, the sixth chapter of Pirkei Avot, of Ethics of Our Fathers. The sixth Mishnah in the sixth chapter lists 48 different tools that we need to maximize life, right? The first tool is to learn, to always be learning. You want to know what greatness is? Greatness is someone who always learns, someone who's always taking in new information, someone who's never satisfied with their level of understanding and wants to take it to the next level constantly. The second, so that's dealing with the mind, constantly learning, using your brain. Your brain is a muscle, right? It's like a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. The next is Bishmiasa Ozen. Listen, be a good listener. A listener not only for other people, right? But listener for yourself. Hashem is constantly speaking to us. Hashem is sending us messages. Hashem is communicating with us. The next level is Barichas Fasayim, is making it our own, internalizing those messages. 
making it part of you. The next is Bevina Saleh, putting it into action. It's not only understanding it, making it your own, but now you're putting it into action. Okay. Then goes level number number five, which is level number five is to have awe, live with awe. Every day you can wake up and you can be like, wow, what a magnificent world Hashem created for who? For me. Hashem created this for me. Look how, look how fortunate I am that this is the world Hashem gave me. And then the next is Yira. Yira means fear, right? And, you know, most people, when they hear the word fear, they're like, yikes, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in fear, right? But, but, but our Sadas, we spoke about this a little bit in the Talmud, the Thinking Talmudist class on Friday. Fear means perspective. We must have perspective. If we don't understand, that when we are in the king's palace, we have to act in a certain way. We don't have the proper perspective. All right? That's what, what needs that. We need to have proper perspective. It doesn't mean that you have to be trembling. But it means you have to have perspective. And we brought many proofs on Friday about how we understand the word fear to mean perspective, proper perspective. But once you have that level six of perspective, what goes next? Naturally. Humility. Humility is the seventh of those tools of the 48 ways to maximize life. And what we learn about humility is that a person needs to know their place. Okay. Man needs to be humble before other people. This will help a person accept and learn from others, even someone younger and smaller. So we think me, I'm I'm a professor, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a great writer. I'm an author. I'm a, that doesn't say or mean that you have all wisdom, right? You could still learn from other people. There's still so much that we can learn from other people. And that is the, 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 the first most important key in anava, in humility. Humility is allowing others in. It's not putting up that barrier, that blockade around us that, Oh, we're we're untouchable. We are we're not willing to hear or accept from anybody else. You cannot grow. You cannot grow. It is impossible for a person to grow spiritually if they don't have humility. A person who doesn't have humility is not allowing themselves the opportunity to grow. That is a, it's a very important point here because we're all trying. The reason why we're all here at eleven o'clock in the morning on a Friday on, on a Sunday morning right, is because we want to grow, because we want to change, because we want to become better. The only way to do that is with humility. A person who realizes, you know what, I'm a deficient in a specific area of wisdom. I'm deficient in a specific area of knowledge. And in learning, I will hopefully fill in that void. From all of my students I have learned, right, we call Melanda Hiskalti, right, and I learned the most from all of my students. I learned the most from all of my students, right? What, what does that mean? That means while one can be a teacher, one can learn, one can grow, one can teach other people. But if you're not willing to recognize that every single person has something to contribute, you, it's, it's amazing because you will find, I find this all the time, that the questions that people ask in these classes help me a tremendous amount in my own learning, right? It's a different perspective. It's learning how to think. You know, it's very interesting 
that the way in which we learn in the yeshiva system is we learn with a study partner. Very important. You have to learn with a study partner. You don't learn yourself. Why is it so important to learn with a study partner? Right. I want to learn what I want to learn. I want to have my opinion the way I have my opinion. And that's it. Because if you only learn yourself, it's like using a knife. What happens when you use a knife for a long time? It gets dull. And you can't sharpen it. How do you sharpen another knife? You take either a rock or you take another knife. What happens when you take another knife and you, and you sharpen them one against the other? What happens? They both become sharp. And our sages tell us that when we learn with another person, what happens is they become smarter, you become smarter. Why? Because we learn to appreciate a different perspective. It's the world we're living in today that has, you know, uh, 17 different options of how you can make the same coffee in Starbucks, right? And I want it with two pumps of caramel, one pump of this and three pumps of that and this. And everyone has their own customized way because... Because we're living in a world that all they care about is what's in it for me, how I want it, how it's good for me. We have to be very, very careful about that. Because that should not allow us to go and become people who all we can uh, consider is our own selves. We have to learn to be able to consider other people. We have to learn to be able to take in other opinions. And it's amazing that those who consider themselves understanding people, loving and accepting people are usually the, mo- the least accepting of other people, the least accepting of other opinions, right? And you can see it with, you know, with demonstrators, you can see it with all of these examples you see today in the news all over the world, right? It's not the people who are, who are learned who are going out there. It's the people who are not willing to learn, the people who are not willing to excel and advance their minds by hearing other perspectives, my way or the highway. Right, literally, right? They'll go protest in the highways. So that's the challenge that we're facing. So I'll just tell you, it's very interesting that what they're doing now in Israel, because of uh, all of the isolation and the lockdown that we've all had across the globe. So in Israel, they came up with this, uh, with this idea. I think it's a brilliant idea that they're making these capsules. And these capsules have 26 students, yeshiva students, because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of yeshiva students, you know, how are you going to get them back to yeshiva? You have to be able to quarantine in the process of bringing them back into the main yeshiva. So what the government came up with an idea, and all of the rabbis are behind this, is capsules. Basically, every capsule has 26 students in it. And those 26 students are in that capsule for two weeks. They're in that capsule, they eat, they sleep, they learn in that capsule, they don't leave. Nobody's allowed to leave. No one's allowed to come in, no one's allowed to go out, right? They eat, sleep, and learn in that capsule. After two weeks, if nobody got ill, nobody has symptoms, they can go into the main yeshiva building. And this is what they're doing now all across Israel. You're talking about, again, hundreds of thousands of yeshiva students can't go learn with their rabbis, can't go learn with their, with their friends, because it's so important to learn one with another. It's not, we don't learn in isolation. We learn by bouncing our ideas off our friends. And our friends say, that's nonsense. What's wrong with you? If you go into a study hall, we did this when we had our trip to Israel last year, and hopefully we'll do one again. We were supposed to do another trip. 
Uh, but everything is canceled now because of the lockdown. There's no flights going into Israel till se- September, they say. So hopefully we'll make a big, we're back again trip and everyone will come join me. Maybe we'll do it for couples and we'll be able to get the Zahava uh, on board and get all the women as well. Uh, but in our men's trip, we went into the Mir Yeshiva. Mir Yeshiva is the largest yeshiva in the world. You're talking about over 9,500 students sitting and learning all day Torah, all day. And it really is remarkable. And uh, we were sitting there. And the noise that you hear in that room, this is just one. There are buildings and buildings and buildings and buildings, of course. But in our, the, the main one that we went into, the noise that you hear of people learning is just like, it's like you think you go into a library and everything is silent. That's not the way Torah learn, learning goes. Torah learning goes out loud. I talk things out and my study partner argues with me. He hears my perspective and argues with me. Right. The idea is which we're our goal is truth. And if our goal is truth, I'm not satisfied by just having my opinion and just, you know, staying with my opinion. I want to continue to advance my perspective. So what do I do? I put out my my perspective. My study partner puts out his perspective and they collide because the way I see it is not the way he sees it. So now we say, okay, one second. Why would your perspective be right? And we talk about that, that their reasoning. I would say, no, but I have a reason why it's not good the way you're saying it. And I give my reasons and so on and so forth. It's interesting. We had two study halls. We had the study hall of Hillel and we had the study hall of Shammai. And we were, they each had hundreds and hundreds of students. And we see that Hillel, 99.9% of the time, the halacha, the law, follows the logic of Hillel and not the logic of Shammai. And our sages give us multiple reasons, but one of them is because Hillel always allowed Shammai to speak first. Shammai, you speak first. We want to listen to you, right? We want to listen to your perspective. Think about it. Maybe, maybe not. Does it ha- make sense? Does it not make sense? Then we'll, well, then we'll display our own opinion. Imagine if every conversation we had with another person, whether it be about politics, whether it be about you know, any uh, trigger issue that's going on today in the world, you know, Roe v. Wade, uh, you talk about any of these hot button issues and people jump, this is my opinion and that's it, right? One second, think about it for a second. It doesn't make you evil to consider another perspective, right? It doesn't make you weak to consider another perspective. On the contrary, the Torah teaches us that by considering another perspective, we only become stronger. Because we we check we do we we give our checks and balances as to whether or not we aren't just fooling ourselves, whether or not we aren't just convincing ourselves that our way is the correct way. So it's very important to always consider someone else's opinion first before you jump to con- to conclusion. Have someone else that you can bounce your idea off them. Allow allow your your perspective to be challenged. Because when you do so, even if they throw out your case, come up with a new reasoning now. Now you can think about it in a new perspective, okay? This is a very important key. When we're talking about about honesty, truth, humility, right? Because if you're not willing to be humble to accept other opinions, then you'll never, ever grow. You'll stick with your same opinions as you had when you were six years old, and you'll you'll never change and you'll never grow, and you'll never become a better person. It is so critically important for a person to have 
other perspectives, right? How many times, I said this before Pesach, but how many people at the Pesach Seder have the same exact experience as they had when they were five or six years old? The way they, their, their mora, their teacher taught them about the splitting of the sea and the 10 plagues when they were five, six years old is the exact same perspective they have today. And today they could be grown adults, right? And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Something should change. Obviously, we should critique ourselves. We should, we should, or bounce it off someone else, or go to a class and learn more perspectives. The idea is we don't want to just stay being the same me, being the same person. We want to constantly advance our level of understanding, advance our level of truthfulness, so we can go to the next level of clarity. So happiness comes when we are content with what we have, while sadness comes when we are looking at what we don't have. Moshe was chosen to give the Torah to to the Jewish people in merit of his humility. Our sages tell us Mount Sinai was not the biggest mountain. We know you go Mount Everest is a heck of a lot larger than Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is almost unrecognizable. You go like, that's Mount Sinai? That's it? That's the mountain? People who travel to Mount Sinai, they're like, it's like very unimpressive. But that's exactly the idea, is that God is telling us to be a person who receives the Torah, you need to be humble. Because if you're not willing to take in other perspectives, you'll never grow, you'll never accept, you'll never learn. It's very interesting that not only was the Torah given at Mount Sinai, but also the holiday of Shavuot always comes out after the portion of Bamidbar. You have the portion of Bamidbar, and then you have the holiday of Shavuot. What's Bamidbar? It's the beginning of Numbers, the book of Numbers. But the literal translation of the word Bamidbar means in the desert, right? What is that telling us? It's telling us, and the Rashi says this right there, a person in order to receive the Torah needs to be humble like a desert, right? Where they can even be trampled on, where other people can step on them, right? We understand that in order to grow, we need to put ourselves aside and allow other people to shine, right? That doesn't mean that we let people destroy our lives. It doesn't mean that we let, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about allowing ourselves to be accepting, to be vessels of understanding of other perspectives. That is the key to, to success in Torah. There are two ways that a person can live their life in Judaism. One is that a person can realize and recognize that the Torah is the principle of this world. This is the manual of the guidebook that God created and God gave the Jewish people, and I can adapt to it. There's another option, is that a person says, no, I'm going to change and twist the Torah to, and bend it to me. Which one comes first? And that's really the question. Which one is the primary? Which one is the, is, is the origin, right? Is the Torah, which was here before the creation of the world. Again, it's the blueprint of the world. Is that the guide and the, and the uh, foundation of this world? Or am I the guide and the foundation, me who came here in 1978 and will leave whenever God decides I should leave? And the Torah will exist beyond me, right? The Torah is eternal, okay? That's my perspective, and that's Moshe's perspective, right? Here's the challenge, is that usually the people who minimize, whether it be offerings, who minimize mitzvahs, oh, this mitzvah is not relevant, or this is just the rabbis, and this is just the this, and oh, that's just midrash, right? That's heresy. By the way, that's heresy on every level. 
Anybody who says that, oh, that's just Midrash, oh, that's just the commentaries, oh, that's just this, is someone who doesn't believe in the truth of the Torah. They don't believe in the veracity of any part of the Torah. And the true, and, and you'll find that most of those same people, they could be leaders of movements, I don't care who they are, don't observe it either. So they can talk the talk while they're not walking the walk. To me, how can someone who has a parking spot that says reserved for the rabbi seven days a week, how can such a person have an opinion on Shabbos? How can such a per- person, I'll tell you a story. Let me tell you an amazing story. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, you know, I love saying stories about Rabbi Moshe Feinstein because he was such a, an incredibly wise man. and such a, such a humble, special person. Let me tell you an amazing story about him. So he gave a halachic ruling that in New York City, okay, the halacha says that any major thoroughfare cannot have a eruv. Anybody, everybody familiar with an eruv? An eruv is basically a way that you make an entire community into one domain, so to speak, and that way you can carry in between on Shabbos between one house and another house. So you can go walk with your child with the stroller. You, when you make an eruv, it makes it basically in our neighborhood here in in in, in Fondren Southwest, in Meyerland, in the UOS community, you have four eruvs already in Houston. Right, there are four eruvs, basically making it possible for people to go with their children to, to shul on Shabbos, so they can go with the strollers. They, you know, the mothers can come with their with, with their babies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in New York City, Reb Moshe Feinstein, who passed away in 1986, made a ruling that in New York City, it, you cannot make an Eruv. Okay. A few years after Rabbi Moshe Feinstein passed away, I would say sometime in the 90s, they got together a, a commission of rabbis. Okay. And not all of them were Orthodox rabbis, you can imagine. And they just got together. To, can we uproot the ruling of Rabbi Feinstein now with modern technology and things like that? Is there anything that we can do, you know, considering uh, halacha, that we can change Rabbi Feinstein's rulings. So they're going back and forth and bringing this source and that source and this, that, that, everyone's going back and forth. So one man gets up and he says, with all due respect to Rabbi Feinstein, he was a rabbi and I'm a rabbi. He says it's forbidden and I say it's permitted. Simple. (laughs) So one of the rabbis who was sitting there in that meeting, he says, with all due respect, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein learned the tractate of Eruvin dealing with these laws. He learned that tractate over 400 times. He knew every word of that tractate inside out. Every single commentary in that tractate inside out. He studied those laws hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And he turns to this individual who compared himself to Rabbi Feinstein by he's a rabbi, I'm a rabbi. He says, would you mind just telling me how many pages are there even in this tractate? And of course, he didn't know the answer, right? He didn't even know how many pages there are in the tractate. And one of the big things when we learn Talmud and to memorize it and to know it is to know exactly what page everything is on. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, you look at his, 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 his response his response has sources for everything. Every single word that he writes, he has, a, he, has, he has a source for it, whether it be in Halacha, in all four books of the Shulchan Aruch, all 14 books of Maimonides, all 63 books of the Talmud, all five books of the Torah, and all 
the other 19 books of the prophets and writings. I mean, he knew everything inside out. He wasn't just a rabbi, and I'm another rabbi. Right? That's, you understand, that the, the broadness of understanding of Rabbi Feinstein is far greater than anybody can imagine. And here this arrogant rabbi, quote-unquote, says, I'm a rabbi, he's a rabbi. Not, not even the same league. Today we're dealing with a lot of, sadly, sadly, a lot of ignorance. And all well-meaning people. But they just don't know. When I have a student who tells me that after I taught him how to put on tefillin in my office, he was putting on tefillin in his congregation, reformed congregation, and the rabbi calls him into his office and says to him, do you mind teaching me how to put on tefillin? Yeah. His reformed rabbi is asking him to teach him how to put on tefillin. So I don't want to hear, no, he's a rabbi, I'm a rabbi, all right? There's a lot of learning that needs to happen for someone to be a rabbi, to know what the Torah says, to know what the prophets and writings say, to know what the Mishnah says, to know what the Talmud says, to know what the Rambam says, to know what the Midrash says, and to know what Shulchan Aruch says, and to not just read some write-up from some rabbi from some university or college or theological seminary who did some homework on, on some online website, right? And then come up with, oh, it's just Midrash. Oh, it's just this. And, and be, be so so flippant about, uh, you know, you know Torah sources are just like not uh, meaningless. It, it's a very, very, very dangerous path to go because then we make, by the way, I don't know if anyone, know, everyone knows this, okay? Do you know that when the conservative movement, and I'm not here, I'm not, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for every single Jew. I don't consider any Jew an Orthodox Jew or a Reformed Jew or a Conservative Jew or a Reconstructionist Jew. I don't consider any. It's just nonsense. It's membership. It doesn't mean anything to me. It really doesn't. There's so much that we need to learn before we can start pushing aside our customs and before pushing aside and, and, and calling those who learn Torah uh, extremists or calling them uneducated. What do you mean uneducated? What do they do all day? They sit and learn Torah. Right? It's an interesting thing, an interesting coincidence that you have in Intel. Intel, everyone's familiar with Intel? Every computer chip in the world today has, is from Intel. Do you know that the, the vast majority of their development comes from their campus in Jerusalem? Do you know that in that campus they have a minion for Mincha every single day because the majority of the people there are Shomer Shabbos, Torah observant, yeshiva scholars? who after leaving the yeshiva went to go and put their brains to, to development and into, into technology. And th they don't know what to do with these people. They're, they're brilliant. How do they think like this? Because their whole life they've been trained not to accept any, any precedents. They don't accept any norms. They challenge everything. That's what yeshiva does. That's what Talmud does. That's what honesty does. And that's what humility does. We don't just, not just because it's my opinion, you know, that offends me. Because you have a different opinion. No, there's no such thing. Grow up. You got to challenge it. And that's what we do. In the Torah, we're constantly challenging. When we learn Talmud, what we do, look at the Talmud that we study every single Friday. There's always a challenge. One second. What are you talking about? We have a different verse that says something else. Let's find a resolution. We don't just say, oh, you know what? He was a big rabbi, so we're just going to accept what he said. No such thing. There's no such thing in Judaism. We need to have it zero in on the truth. And not just because a person said it, a great rabbi says it, therefore it must be so.
We don't have rabbis just mysteriously trying to make our lives miserable where, you know, some people say, oh, the rabbis were just bored. Come on. Right. They came up with all these laws because they're just they, you know, they had extra time on their hands. Right. That's heresy on the highest level. Okay, a humble person is one who knows this place and doesn't think of himself greater than they really are. You cannot pray, even prayer, the simple task of prayer cannot happen without humility. Humility is required if you believe in God. If a person believes in God, that means there's a higher power. That means I'm not hakol yachol. I'm not able to do everything. God is able to do everything. In order for me to have the proper perspective, the proper humility, right? In the, the proper perspective of God, I need to have humility. It's a very, very important principle. If a person believes in his heart that he is greater than another person, but doesn't say it verbally, right? Our sages tell us he's still considered humble. Speech, though, confirms the feeling as this, right? Speech confirms it, locks it in to action. So it's it, even if you feel a certain way, it doesn't mean you need to say it, okay? Humility generates truth and objectivity, right? You allow truth to, to prevail. Humility is freedom. Your personality expresses itself in an organic, internally generated, and more real way. Humility is pleasure. Arrogance is pain. Such a, an amazing phrase, right? Noah Weinberg. He would say humility is pleasure. Arrogance is pain. Why is that? When a person is arrogant, why are they arrogant? Because they're not feeling comfortable with themselves. They're in a point of pain. They need to, you know, they need to show off. They need to have people recognize them because they're not satisfied within. A person who is in a place of, of, of satisfaction, a person who is comfortable with who they are doesn't need to show off. They're humble. They recognize their place. Humility enables you to embrace others. You know what? I'll just finish up a thought from, from what I was mentioning before. So, you know, when the conservative movement allowed people to drive the this, this synagogue, right? Uh, they, they had a response. They went through some halachic reasoning that was flawed, very flawed. And I'll explain to you why in a second. So they, they said that it's permissible for people of the conservative movement to drive to shul on Shabbos. A few years later, they retracted that. And they said that we were wrong. And you're really not allowed to. But that was not publicized. But if you go look at the response of the conservative movement, you'll see that they allowed it and then disallowed it. They totally removed that. that but at that time, the gates were open. And we know, we know what happened from there. You know what that causes? I'll tell you what that causes. That causes that we have something called suburban Jewry, where people have no problem moving away from a Jewish community. They have no problem not having Jewish neighbors. They have no problem being in an environment that's completely secular and, und- and not Jewish because I can always just drive to synagogue. You see, what used to keep and what still does keep a community wholesome and Jewish is that we have no choice. I can never move to a place that I don't have a, a shul. I can never, right? I can't just move out to Katy because it's a nice place because there's no shul there in walking distance, right? But the minute you break away that barrier, what happens? You have this thing called suburban Jewry where people, and then, you know what? 
How many of them actually come to synagogue? So of the thousands and thousands and thousands of members that we have in these synagogues that say it's okay to drive on Shabbos, how many of them actually attend? We know it's in the very, very, very small single-digit percent, right? And they become what we know of as twice-a-year Jews. They come Rosh Hashanah, they come Yom Kippur, or once-a-year Jews, only Yom Kippur, right? And what, where did that come from? That came from a flawed methodology, a flawed understanding of halacha, which was later again. It was retracted later. They said, you know what? We made a mistake, but it was too late. So it, it's very dangerous to say because of modern technology, because of we're living in a modern world, oh, now our Torah is not relevant anymore. Now our Torah isn't really, doesn't really relate. I've had so many people, I'm, 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 you know, I'm now over 15 years in Jewish outreach full time. I've had people say everything in the world you can imagine about every topic almost. And this is one of the big ones. Like, come on, Rabbi, you know, you know, all of the great rabbis of the Talmud didn't understand cars. They didn't understand technology. They didn't understand this. And, and you know, again, make, trying to take the Torah and convert it to me instead of taking myself and apply it to the Torah. Right. Which one is it going to go? Is it going to go me to the Torah or the Torah to me? And that's really the struggle is that people aren't willing to have the humility that the Torah is far greater than us. And we need to really move and transfer our way of thinking to the thinking of the Torah. What's a greater mitzvah? The observance of Shabbos or going to shul. Going to shul is a rabbinic law. So are we ready to forsake a biblical law, which is observing the Shabbos, for a rabbinic law? I don't think so. I think it's the wrong priorities. I think the, 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 the goal should be observing the Torah laws perfectly and then dealing with the rabbinic laws to the greatest of our ability. Now, I'm not here to, to, to judge anyone or to criticize anyone. That's not my job. There's an almighty God. He's in charge of that, right? All I do is I try to inspire Jews to take a step in their Judaism. I once heard from a great, great, great rabbi who was actually a student of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Okay. He uh, was in Russia before the Iron Curtain came down. He, was, he met an old Jew who's an older, whatever, he was in his 60s, 70s. His mother had passed away. And because his mother had passed away, the way they did it is that if you had a family of four, you got this size apartment. If you got a family of three now, you're going you're gonna to move the next day. After the person is buried, boom, they move, right? Because it's communism. They, they're not giving you a house for four people when you really have three now. So they moved him outside of the city of Moscow and he met the rabbi and he was very distraught. He says, listen, he says, I, I keep Shabbos. I keep kosher. He says, as difficult as it is living outside of the city, far from the shul, he says, I saw I daven at home. I don't daven with the minion. I, whatever I need to do, I do because I need to observe the Torah. He says, but how can I have Rosh Hashanah without hearing the shofar? How can I have Rosh Hashanah without hearing the shofar? So he asked this rabbi, I heard this from the rabbi himself, Rabbi Nata Greenblatt, and he said an amazing thing. So he said, considering everything that, was, that, that, that he was talking about, the man asked, can he take a train from his town to the main area in Moscow so that he can go hear the chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah? And obviously he would have someone pay for him and he would have, you know, he would just be on the train. He wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, you know, wouldn't push any buttons. He wouldn't do anything you know, getting off the next stop. It was right. He would just get on, go off, and go hear the chauffeur. 
And he uh, guided him that it would be okay, that circumstance alone. And then when he came back to New York, he was very, very, very worried that maybe he gave him a wrong ruling. See, he went to his rabbi, Reb Moshe Feinstein, and his rabbi, he, and he, when he was telling me this, he was crying. He said his rabbi told him, Reb Moshe Feinstein told him, it was good kepaskin. You gave a good ruling, right? You gave a good ruling. So again, you do have scenarios, you do have situations, right? But we have to be very, very careful that we're not doing it to make the Torah come to us instead of us going to the Torah. Okay, we have to be very, very careful that it's not just because I'm, I have my comfortable life. This is the way I want to live. I want to live here and I want to live there. And the Torah will just have to work my way. Right. That's not right. I had a guy call me up one time. He says to me, um, uh, is this Rabbi Wolby? I said, yes. He says, I was wondering, he says, I moved here from Atlanta and my realtor told me that there was going to be an Orthodox community uh, uh, developing in Kingwood, Texas. He says, so we moved to Kingwood, Texas. And there's not an Orthodox Jew in sight. So I said, Kingwood, Texas? Are you kidding me? I said, Kingwood? There's no one in Kingwood. Right? So he said, so he, he was upset at his broker that, 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 that he, he, he sold him a bill of goods that there's going to be an Orthodox community up in Kingwood. He ultimately ended up moving to, to this neighborhood where he can keep Shabbos and where he can have an Arab and we can, he can attend shul. But the way we were and the way we are, and that's why we're such a close-knit community as Jews, is because we have to live within the area of a shul. Yeah, you know what? We could live out in Rosenberg, right? In Rosenberg, Texas. But guess what? There's not going to be a shul there. So if you want to raise your children, Jerusalem, so everything is linked together, all coming down to Shabbos, right? Shabbos is really the key. Kihi mikara is the source of all blessing. Okay, I don't want to get too carried away in this. I want to share with you a beautiful story, though. I heard this from Senator Lieberman himself personally. So Senator Lieberman, the morning after the 2000 election, you remember it went into a whole dispute, Dimple Chads, uh, Miami-Dade County, they were recounting, there were pregnant Chads. You remember all of those? Do you remember that whole story? Right? They were Gore and Bush, who's going to win, right? So he was the vice presidential candidate for Gore. So the next morning, he says he was sitting on his back porch in his Connecticut house, and uh, he's reading the paper, drinking his coffee. His wife sits down next to him, and she says to him, Joe. Don't worry. In this house, you'll always be vice president. It was it, it was very, very cute, right? You know what? Who's the president? I wonder, right? But the the idea, the idea is that a person needs to know their place. A person needs to know their place. Humility enables us to embrace others. When we realize that we are here on a mission, you know what? I saw over here a, a in one of my notes, it says like this. One of the great sages said, he says, I know that I have a mind, a brain of a thousand people. Is that arrogant? Not arrogant. He says, but you know what that means? I have the responsibility to produce the intelligence of a thousand people. That means it's, he's not showing off. Look at me. I have such a great mind. On the contrary, it only obligates me more. If someone has such a great talent, that only means that they're more responsible. If someone has so much wealth, it doesn't mean that they can show off and buy more cars and more houses. On the contrary, it means that they need to do more good with their money. So by a person recognizing the good that they have, the gifts that God gave them, it doesn't put them off the hook. On the contrary, it puts them on the hook. They're more responsible because of that. 
they have more obligations because of the gifts that God gave them. It's such a critical perspective that a person needs to have of themselves. It's vital for a person to understand where they stand with themselves. You know, there was this, there was once a boat that uh, their slogan was that even God can't drown this. Everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? 1916 was called the Titanic. And what happened on its maiden voyage? It sunk. We cannot be the Titanic. We should learn from that. It was a humbling experience for the world of what it means to stand up against God. Right? You're great. You're mighty. You're awesome. But know your place.